Father, as we just sung, who would have expected the way that you would save? It is marvellous, it is a mystery that the Creator should, be, should become creation, should take on flesh, that the, the, the ruler, the sovereign of the universe should serve his creation, giving his life as a sacrifice. Father, we thank you that you are the God who seeks the lost. We pray, Lord, that as we, as we look at your gospel this evening, Lord, that it would strike our hearts anew, uh, that it would light a fire in our hearts, that we would appreciate it for the, the glorious message that it is, and that it would affect us and change us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, what makes you happy? That's a good question to start with, isn't it? Back in 2016, a survey I read was conducted by the University of Sussex and the London School of Economics to determine what gives people the most joy. Uh, and this survey determined that the kinds of activity that give us joy include, and they had a fairly comprehensive list, visiting museums and exhibitions. I mean, maybe they're surveying a particular type of person, I don't know. Uh, going to theatres and concerts, running an exercise. How many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. There'll be people here in this room, and that's the greatest thrill to them, is to you know, sweat in a room somewhere with people. I don't, don't get it. Uh, closely followed, further down the list, you had things like gardening. There's probably some of you here, there's nothing you like more, especially when it's warm. Uh, and tending an allotment, even. The joy of seeing things grow, isn't it wonderful? Of producing something. That's great, isn't it? Meditating and religious activities actually came in at number 13. I don't even know quite what they mean. <laughs> I mean, that's fairly nebulous, isn't it? Meditating, religious activities. What, what did they think they were saying when they said that? I don't know. But entirely absent from the list was... Seeing a sinner repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you surprised? It's, it's a shock, isn't it? And yet, according to verse 7, if we take this parable seriously, look at it. Luke 15, verse 7. That is what brings you know, cosmic rejoicing. You know, celestial rejoicing is the better way to put it. Rejoicing in heaven. In this rebellious world, full, full of God-rejectors, uh, full of billions of human beings wallowing in their sin, and with the results of their sin seen in the brokenness and the misery that creeps into and, and destroys everything good around us, bleak, in this ruined world, there's one thing that brings joy to all the inhabitants of heaven as they, as they, as they look at it. And it's one sinner. Just one, says Jesus here, who turns from their sin and puts their trust in God's Saviour, Jesus. Now, I think we really struggle to get this. Um, we struggle to get this generally as, as, a, as a culture. It's a bizarre concept, isn't it? Because people picture God as being like some grumpy old white-haired man with a, with a beard, uh, with lightning coming from his fingers, uh, looking for someone to smite. That's the world's sort of... That's what they think we believe uh, God is, a God who's itching you know, to open up the ground like he did in the good old days of the Old Testament and swallow people up. Really bizarre, twisted view of God, isn't it? 
And, and, but even Christians can fall into the trap, I think, of thinking of God as being a bit like, and I, I say this reservedly because I know there are some of them amongst us, but being a bit like a, a, a headmaster, you know, one of the bad headmasters, the ones that's got the power's gone to his head a little bit and likes nothing more than trousers down and six of the best sort of thing, you know? Or, or perhaps more like a driving test examiner, that you're fearful, there he is with his clipboard, waiting for you to make a mistake and tick off your, your faults. Is that what we think about God? I mean, we can fall into that, I think, at least to the level of thinking that God is sitting there waiting to be impressed by us, sort of with a furrowed brow. Come on, get your act together. But the Bible paints this very different picture all the way through of what God is like. The God of the Bible uh, is sorrowful over the lost. He, he weeps for the lost. In the Old Testament, he weeps through the eyes of the prophets, doesn't he? He sends his messengers over and over begging, begging that people would, 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 would return to him, would turn from their sin. In the New Testament, he weeps through the eyes of Jesus, the, the frustration. He's moved to the pit of his stomach, Jesus, as he sees lost people, harassed and helpless, isn't he? We're told that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways. Repent is what repent means, isn't it? Rather that they repent and live, Ezekiel 33. God cares so much for this sinful humanity, loves us so dearly that the Bible tells us he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But it continues, doesn't it? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the character of God, isn't it? That's why he sends his son. So let that sink in just for a moment. Anyone who knows the Bible well knows that that's a true, true picture of what God is like from beginning to end. And so over and over the story repeats as, you, as you're going through the Bible, you, you, it's always this way around, isn't it? People turn their backs on God. They embrace their sin. They become enslaved. They cry out in distress. And God hears and has compassion and sends rescue for them. Brings them back to safety and to blessing. It's the picture of God's people. But before long, what do they do? They turn their backs on God and, you know, the vicious cycle repeats. As one writer put it, then, if you want to see what the character of God is like in that story, what you have here is God is, he says, God is no reluctant saviour, God is a relentless saviour. Isn't that what we see all the way through the Bible? Relentlessly. Yeah, you and I would have thrown the towel in a long time ago. No, he's relentless. And so it should come as no great surprise that we read here in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15 Look at this, the painting of the, the scene as we come to this parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Because why wouldn't they? They knew here was a man who loved them. And so it seems when you read through the Gospels, everywhere Jesus goes, it's the same. Whenever you read about Jesus actually stopping and having a meal... Generally, not always, but almost always, virtually always, he's in the company of sinners when he eats. Isn't it interesting? Jesus had a reputation for this, eating with sinners all the time. Well, I, I find that a very challenging verse just there in verse, verse 1, isn't it? 
We haven't even got to the, to the parable yet. And this is challenging, isn't it? Sinners like to be with Jesus. They like to hang out with Jesus. They were comfortable with Jesus, weren't they? They like being with him. They like listening to what he had to say. They wanted clearly to hear him. And I wonder, put very simply, if you're a Christian here, is that true of you? Is that true of you? Are unbelievers, are people around you, especially those who know they are not good, right? Those who know their lives are a bit messed up, are those kind of people attracted to being with you? Do they gravitate towards you? You know, as, in, as individuals and as a church, we, we ought to look at ourselves on this. Do the people of Chesterfield, of Walton, feel welcome amongst us here in this church? Do they like being here? I hope they do. I hope it's not the case that they avoid us for fear of being judged or of being disapproved of. Jesus, in, in every action and word, he exudes this love, doesn't he? This compassion, the compassion of his father. He's just like his father. So much so that the people actually started to call him friend of sinners, didn't they? I suspect they thought that was an insult at the time, but it's precious to us, isn't it? And why not? That's the very heart of God. But it's not the heart of the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you believe it? To the Pharisees, this way of behaving was, was scandalous, actually. Jesus was supposed to be this great rabbi that they'd heard about with all this stuff going up in the north in, in, in Galilee. Uh, and, and the people were saying, you know, they're even claiming this man, he's doing miracles, he must be some kind of a prophet. We know the rumours going around. And huge crowds have gathered to hear him, uh, to hear his radical and controversial teaching. He's, he's worked the miracles or so, they said, everyone's believing in him. Whoever he was, he must be sent by God. A lot of them were thinking that. It must, must be true. And so the religious establishment, you know how it is. If you've read the Gospels, you see this. They're actually starting to send their spies to come and actually infiltrate, see what Jesus is actually doing, what's going on with this guy. And they fixate on this as a serious issue, what we're looking at tonight. Because if he is a man of God... Well, surely he would know how important it is to keep the finer points of the law, or, or at least of our rules. <laughs> Sometimes his disciples, they eat and they don't even wash their hands. Can you believe it? And he breaks the Sabbath laws. They encourage them to do it. They're picking corn in the fields. They're, they're healing people. They're working on, on the Sabbath. Surely he should take purity more seriously. This man is going around touching lepers, for goodness sake. He's allowing women of dubious character uh, to get up close to him, to touch his feet. Surely he must know that sort of stuff's going to defile him. It's almost like he's welcoming to sinners, this supposedly this holy man. There he sits amongst the prostitutes and the lowlifes and the loan sharks and the extortioners, the seedy underbelly of Palestine, as I like to call it. That's who Jesus is sitting with. But the Pharisees, they would never do that. They're proud of the fact they would never do that. Not them. God and the people can clearly see how undefiled they are. Washed, bathed, keeping a distance from sinners 
keep them across there the other side. And that's the setting then as we come to this parable. Get it? We need to, we need to see that, I think. See, Jesus has been teaching up to this point about distinctiveness, about being different. That's the ironic thing, actually, if you think about it. At the end of chapter 14, if you take a look, he turns to a large crowd and tells them that they seriously need to count the cost if they're going to follow him. That actually following him takes surrendering, it takes letting go of whatever is dearest and most precious to you. Release the fingers from that. Stop holding on to that so tightly and instead hold on to him. Even if life itself, you know, choosing him over, over spouse, children, brother, sister. Carrying a cross. Salt is good, says Jesus in verse 34. But if it loses its sharp and distinctive flavor, well, it's not even suitable for the compost heap. You, could, you maybe pave your path with it, but that's about it. We need to be radically distinctive people, you see. And, and can you see the irony there of Jesus? <laughs> Listening to that, which they, they always were, hanging on Jesus' every words, but for a different reason, these Pharisees. I'm sure they were thinking, well, wow, he preaches like we need to be different and distinct. He's preaching this real distinctiveness thing. But then he goes and mixes with the crowd he's mixing with. He's not distinctive at all. Look at him. He's just there eating with them, drinking with them. Practice what you preach, Jesus. And this is the very point, you see. Jesus is being distinctive. It's very easy to hide behind religion and comfortable, like-minded cliques and friends and peers. But it is very costly, salty even, if you will, to go and be amongst those who are different from you yourself. In contrast to himself, these Pharisees were actually, when you think about it, bland and useless in the way that they were living. There's just a blandness to them. They're just they're sitting there as a homogenous blob, usually away from everybody in a corner. And Jesus is going to expose their hypocrisy. Look at verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. So that's the context for this parable. Verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, you've got to understand that that would likely not have been taken as a compliment, that picture. It's not a complimentary picture. Shepherds were at the absolute bottom, really, of the pile when it came to Jewish society. I mean, you could be a tax collector, that would be worse, yeah. But shepherds, that's pretty low. If you couldn't get any other honest work, a decent job, only then did you really end up becoming a shepherd, it seems. And it was better than turning to an immoral career, but it was still a low and it was a dirty, dirty job. And the interesting thing is that, you know, you think about this, uh, and people, people make this comment, you know, David and Moses, two of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. They were shepherds. But surely that's actually the point. Do you see why shepherds are so lowly? Because in their stories, that's what they were lifted out of. All right, They used to be that. They became something far, far better than that. Cleaned up, leaders, kings. And so these shepherds, just think about them, these men and, and boys, they spent many nights out in the open. They lived amongst animals. They lived amongst the filth that that entailed. One writer says of them, in a society fanatical about cleanliness, shepherds stood aside. They were never clean. It was impossible. They were constantly walking out in excrement and touching dead things. 
and both activities left them in a state of ritual impurity. And yet Jesus addresses the Pharisees, the most fanatically clean of all. He looks them in the eye and he puts them into the sandals of these shepherds. Imagine one of you is a shepherd with the sheep. That's what he's telling them. I mean, that's going to be bringing out the Pharisees in a bit of a cold sweat, isn't it? I don't want to imagine that. You know, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be today, and I don't want to even suggest it. And yet, that's how Jesus is referring to them. And it's a, and it's a very short story that has, I think, four simple points. Well, four scenes to it, shall we say. And I'll put them up on the screen. Lost, looked for, found, rejoiced over. That's really the pattern of the story, isn't it? Let's... Let's look at it in verse 4. Suppose one of you, you, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, when we hear that story, all kinds of questions are going up because we're saying, no, no, I don't know, I have no idea. I don't know what shepherds do. Right? But let's look at the, the, the first scene there, lost. Here you've got, just to paint the picture, I think is, is, this is a village scene. And each family in the village is going to have a, a couple of sheep, maybe. One or two, maybe a few more sheep. The poorest might one or two. The wealthiest, maybe you have, as they say, as many as 15 sheep you might have. So, so the, you know, the, the village has a flock. But it would be hard, dirty work to look after them and to keep them safe. You, you, can't, you, know, you can't keep them in the garden. <laughs> you know, a sheep, it's not going to... We've, we've toyed with the idea of keeping one on top of our garage. You know, put some grass up there and, you know, see how many people get freaked out by it. But, but that's not realistic, is it? You, you, you need space for it. And so what they would do is, is get together a band of people who were going to be the shepherds. Probably people from the village itself. I mean, you don't want hired hands from the outside because they might be dishonest, they might be thieves. They're more likely to be. And so this little band of boys and men, they're looking after the flock together in, in a sort of a rural setting. Got it? They're out on the hills. And you were looking after then a, a commodity that was precious. And, and it was the possessions actually of people you probably knew. Friends, neighbours, family. And the village depends on its sheep. Without the sheep... There's, 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 you're going to be missing food, aren't you? Cheese, milk, you're going to be missing the wool for, for clothing. I mean, a good sheep will keep producing for its owner a regular supply, they say, you know, every, every year, for many years. It's like, so for the shepherds, it's like keeping safe the, the, the investment bank accounts, really, I suppose, for the whole village. Yeah, you're going to get a bit of interest. You know, it's, it's all of that sort of stuff. And Jesus tells them, look, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep in your charge and you lose one. You know, to, to us, you know, if you're thinking just shepherd with loads of sheep, losing one, well, you know, it happens. But that's not the case, do you see, as I paint the picture for you. It's a disaster to lose one of them. That sheep might have been someone's only sheep. It's an unacceptable loss. It's like losing your wallet. You'd be anxious, you'd be wanting to recover it, you'd be looking for it. People are depending on you. Word's going to spread around the village, isn't it? People are going to be waiting anxiously for news. The sheep that got lost, has it been found? I mean, if you imagine if your savings were, were at stake here. 
You, you'd be checking the papers and listening to the radio, waiting for news if, your bank, if you thought the bank was going bust. This could potentially ruin someone. It's a big deal. Okay, lost. Second scene then, looked for. Now, obviously, a responsible shepherd, says Jesus, would leave the 99 in the pasture. I think the point here is that they are safe with the other workers. Okay? And that shepherd, responsible shepherd, Mr. Shepherd, responsible man, he's going to go out and he's going to go looking for the lost one. The others are all right. We need to find the lost one. Now, I've read a blog that was actually written by a Northumbrian uh, shepherd. And he agrees with my assumption, uh, my assumption from walking in the countryside, that sheep are incredibly stupid. Okay? They are incredibly stupid animals. And worse than that, okay, what can you, how can you add to being incredibly stupid to have absolutely no defence mechanism built in to protect yourself from anything? So they are prey to any predator that's going to come along. They're basically delicious and unarmed, right? Not only that, but sheep are prone to wandering. You know how a sheep is. I don't know if you've ever sat and watched them for a little while. Something catches their eye, and so they wander over and they have a munch, yeah, or a sniff or something like that. Uh, and, and then, you know, they, uh, they see something else. Well, they go off that way, and then they see something else, and they, go, and they just wander and wander and wander after the things that look nice, yeah, one thing after another. And before you know it, they're easily lost. And additionally, and I had to check this because it beggars belief, they can get what's called cowpered. Heard of that word? Cowpered. That is, usually, it usually happens to a fatter sheep, so I want you to picture this, a very large, fat, indulgent sheep who's been wandering away looking for all of the lovely grass and eaten more than he should have, or she should have, probably. And they fall, or more likely, they roll onto their back for a bit of a scratch, you know, because you've, you've had a big dinner and you want to scratch your back. And then you cannot get back up again. Can any of you relate to that? <laughs> it's like Christmas Day, isn't it? <laughs> And the word kessing describes the wriggling and the striving to get back up onto your feet. So you've got a cowpered sheep there, and he's kessing around on the floor. It's another language, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, you know, if they're not helped, says this shepherd, the shepherd actually says on his blog, you see one doing this, <laughs> give him a shove, try and help him to get back onto his feet, because if they're not helped, they will die. This is the sheep. This is the precarious life of a sheep because they are stupid. Uh, and um, an opportunistic wolf or some other predator is going to see this kessing sheep with its legs wriggling around like this on the ground. And all a sheep can do as the predator comes up is just pathetically bleat and kick and become a meal. Now, added to this... The shepherd himself is going to have a massive task on his hand if, if, if the sheep's wandered. It, it, it's, you, you've got to hunt down the sheep in the wilderness. That's a massive, massive job. They say every rock in Palestine looks like a sheep. That's what they say. It's like finding the proverbial you know, needle in a haystack. But the shepherd in this story, he has no intention of giving up. And he's out and he's going out looking. He's honourable, you see. He's a good shepherd. He knows what's at stake. He knows the clock is ticking. The longer he leaves it, the more likely the sheep's going to come to harm. And so off he goes. Scene three, found. So Jesus says when he finds it, this shepherd, because this is a determined shepherd, and it's when, not if. 
He is going to find the sheep, and when he finds it, the story's going to have a happy ending, isn't it? When he finds the sheep, amazingly still not savaged, perhaps injured from its foolish wanderings, but not, not dead, he lifts it on his shoulders, says Jesus, and he carries it home. Now, this silly animal weighs over 100 kilograms. Imagine that. If it's fully grown, over 100, over 100 kilograms, uh, and a lot more, actually, depending on whether it's male or female. And probably the shepherds come a long way, because sheep, they wander. Now, I've had four wandering children that I've had to raise. I'm sure there are many of you here who know what this is like. It's mind-blowing how far little legs can carry you, isn't it? The shepherd's going to have a long walk home with this silly, silly sheep. And he's got to hoist that animal that's like lifting. I don't even carry bags. Of I was making concrete this weekend, 25 kilo bags. Put four of those up on your shoulders. That's a lot of weight, dead weight over your shoulder. Well, hopefully not dead, but wriggling weight on your shoulders. It's going to be a back-breaking trek. But he doesn't kick the sheep. <laughs> I'd be tempted to give it. Or grumble to himself. I'd be tempted to do that too. No, he joyfully carries the sheep back, actually. Why? Because scene four, rejoiced over. The shepherd knows how much this sheep means. It's an exciting thing for the shepherd to find the sheep and put it on his shoulders. He knows how much it's worth to its owner. And so his shoulders might ache, his knees might be buckling, but for the joy set before him, he carries the load with a smile on his face, anticipating the celebration that lies ahead when he returns. Because when he gets home, it's party time for the whole village. They're all breathing a sigh of relief for old Mrs. Jones, who lost her only sheep. Rejoice with me, he cries, as he enters the village. I found my lost sheep. Now, Jesus is, as always, he's, he's a master storyteller. I'm sure he told it way better than I did. And I'm sure the pictures people would have had in their heads were very vivid about this whole thing. And you can imagine even the Pharisees, after you know the, sh the initial shock of being likened to shepherds has worn off, you can imagine they're, they're, they're right in there with him. They're hanging on his every word. Uh, even they're relieved this story has a happy ending. This shepherd, well, he did good, didn't he? He did well. He's an honorable man. He's lowly, he's dirty, but he's honorable. The story is a good story. It's a right story. It's a proper story. This is how the world should be. It makes sense. You know, I want to congratulate this shepherd. And then Jesus delivers his killer line, the sting in the tail. It's in verse 7. I tell you, says Jesus, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. See, there they sit applauding a lowly, dirty shepherd for doing his rightful duty, the duty of a shepherd, to save the life of an unclean, stupid animal whilst they're condemning the good and great shepherd who stands before them for the very same thing, for seeking to rescue unclean sinners. See the irony? How is it that God can be so eager, that God can be so desirous, that he can be so concerned to seek and save the lost, whilst you, 
you who claim to be his, his representatives on earth, those who tell us the way we should live, only despise the lost. And that's the point, I think, as Jesus tells this story to this group of Pharisees. You see, and they clearly would have seen this, I think, the sheep are a picture of you and me. I mean, it's a common Old Testament image, isn't it? We read from Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. You may find it very unflattering, the way that we've described sheep this evening, to think of yourself as being like one. And it's Jesus, the good shepherd, who's come to, to look for, to find, to rescue us. Well, I want to apply this in two ways as we finish up this evening, just to give it some time here. Two ways. Firstly, I think it's really important as we look at this story to, to feel this story rebuke us for any traces of the Pharisee heart that might be harboring itself inside us. See, that last phrase, by the way, where Jesus talks about 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. I take it that's pure sarcasm. Jesus' message was repent and believe the good news. The Bible declares it in black and white. There's no one righteous, not even one. The Pharisees saw themselves, though, as having no need to repent. But they were every bit as lost as the sinners they despised. More so because the tragedy for them clearly is they don't even know they're lost. That's terrifying, isn't it? Don't ever be deceived into thinking that being righteous, that being right in God's eyes is a matter of cleaning up your act, making more of an effort with God, adding things that you think are going to make you clean in his eyes. That's a road that only leads to destruction. No, you need, you need someone to seek and to save you, you lost sheep. But once we've got that cleared up, this parable calls you and I, and I'm speaking to my Christian brothers and sisters, to ask ourselves, well, what's the source then of our joy? What makes us happy in this life? Because I take it we will actually, that's what we'll pursue I think that's what we'll put effort into if we believe that's, that something will give us joy. We'll, we'll pursue it, won't we? So where are you going to find that joy? What's going to give you, that, you know, that, the highest joy? What will bring you the deepest satisfaction and greatest fulfillment? Is it anything to do with what brings joy to God's heart? See, a few chapters um, later... So in Luke 19, we get that wonderful episode where Jesus is yet again in the house of a tax collector, another one of these people the Pharisees want nothing to do with. He was named Zacchaeus, and he had his whole life turned upside down by Jesus. He had turned from his thieving and his cheating and had become a follower of Jesus instead. He was a sinner who had wholeheartedly repented. His money... All of his possessions that had consumed him, it seems, had lost all appeal. He was like, he couldn't get rid of it fast enough, if you read the story. Because instead, he was captivated by a wonderful saviour. And Jesus says to all of those gathered there in his house, 
Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' purpose. It was his reason for living, wasn't it? That's what he's saying there. That's why I came. And it was the source of his joy. It was the source of his joy. The Bible later tells us that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one that we're to look to, to fix our eyes on. That is, you know, to set the course of our lives and our hearts on. He endured the cross. It was at the cross Jesus was physically brutalized. He was butchered, wasn't he? He was beaten and torn. He was nailed there, hand and foot. Why? For the joy set before him. Jesus looked beyond the suffering and the humiliation and the shame and saw the glory that awaited, the joy. Three days later, he would rise from his grave, the saviour of sinners, and he would take his place, the place of victory and rule and reign at his father's right hand. Jesus saw what the fruit of that suffering would be. And that unspeakable joy, saved sinners, was his motivation. Can there be any greater joy than seeing a sinner turn to God? Can you, Christian, can you think of anything else you'd rather be part of in this life? I can't, honestly. You know, when I really sit down and think about it. Can you think of anything you'd rather achieve in this short life than taking the good news of the gospel to a sinner and seeing them repent? Seeing a loved one turning from darkness to light, from death to life, everlasting life. You know, one author I read a while, a while back put it this way. He said, the older you get, the longer is your track record of disappointments. It's <laughs> a great way to start a paragraph, isn't it? He says, one thing to be said for being young is you don't have so many failures yet to deal with. You think, God must be unhappy with me. I must make God sad every day. But here, and he's commenting on this verse, here I can participate in the joy of God. And I can not only make God rejoice, but all of heaven rejoice if I allow myself to be an instrument through which the great shepherd recovers the lost. What a glorious way to view your life. This is the Great Commission, he says. Are you pursuing that joy? Second thing, then, as we close, is I think we must see in this parable the absolute wonder and glory of the gospel. If you're a disciple of Christ, this is your story. Revel in it. It's a wonderful story. Like lost sheep, we as human beings are utterly foolish. I'm sorry to say it. But we have a shepherd who will provide all that we need and who will give us uh, blessing and security if we will just come to him. But we don't. Instead, we wander. We are like senseless sheep, aren't we? The Bible's absolutely right about us. We see something, you just picture, we see something that just appeals more, and we go for that instead. And we do it over and over and over again because the grass is always greener. 
which is all kinds of things. There's alternatives to God. There's the shepherd who will give us everything that, you know, that we need. Yet, no, 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 we reject it. And life away from God becomes a series of failed substitutes that never deliver. And eventually it leaves us ruined and broken by sin and defenceless in the face of death and of the judgment that follows it. But the good shepherd, he seeks and saves lost sheep. He comes looking for us. And when he finds his lost ones, he will not fail to utterly rescue them. He's a rescuer. And like silly sheep, we contribute really nothing. That's what the Pharisees failed to see, isn't it? This is the wonder of our Saviour. He does, this is, you see it in the story, don't you? He does the seeking. He does the finding. He does the lifting. He does the carrying. He does the restoring. And he, the good shepherd, leads the celebration. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his sheep. And the Apostle Peter probably has this parable in mind when he writes to, he's writing to believers scattered all over, really, the empire. And he says this to them. We'll pop it up on the screen. He says of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You're now in his care. So are you a lost sheep? Are you a lost sheep? Lost and entangled by those things that promise to satisfy but never really do. You can bring joy to heaven tonight. Do you see that? If that's you, then won't you return now to the safety, to the blessing, to the hope that finds itself only in the good shepherd and overseer of your soul? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great unchanging love and compassion for sinners like us. All of us, we confess, we are like sheep. We're prone to wander, prone to go over the next thing that we see and go after it. We thank you for sending Jesus, the good shepherd, to, to seek and save those who are lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, help us to be like salt, to be distinctive, to be different like Jesus was. And yet f so full of your compassion and love that it drives us to go to the lost and it drives the lost to want to be with us. Father, help us to break free from our love of, of comfort, our desire for an e easy life, to just be amongst people like us. Help us instead to go to those who are not like us. May we live the kind of lives that attract lost people. May our lives and our words be full of grace, leading sinners to the, the great shepherd and overseer of their souls. And so we ask it in his good name. Amen. Amen.